namo tassa bhagavato arahanto sama sambodasa namo tassa bhagavato arahanto sama sambodasa namo tassa bhagavato arahanto sama sambodasa tonight I, I would like to offer a talk and it's um Phil, um, it's a privilege to uh, be here tonight and to talk. I, this is my first retreat teaching at IMS. I've taught in the West Coast at Spirit Rock a number of times, and I originally am from Massachusetts, although I live now in California, and it's nice to be in my home state. And IMS is also a very special place to me, because back in I believe 1981 or two, my teacher Tunku Lucero, who's a Burmese forest master, see if some people have trouble hearing me. Is this better? Okay. Uh, my teacher Tunku Lucero, a Burmese forest ma uh, monk, meditation master, and a group of monks, they built on uh, IMS a ordination site in what was the former tennis court. This is a very uh, sacred space where they can ordain monks as well as on the new and full moon recite the 227 rules of discipline or the Padimokha. And to build a sema is no simple matter. It takes about three days and a designated piece of land is broken down into small little boxes, maybe about three feet wide and about six feet long. And there, four or five monks crawl into this little box and they chant for 20 minutes. And they do this. It takes about three days to consecrate this uh, very special land for ordination and for the reciting of the rules of discipline. And so I, I just, coming here brings back very fond memories of my teacher who died uh, in the middle, actually in 1986 at the age of 90. So tonight I want to speak about the Dharma. It's Saturday night. I'm just thinking about that. A lot of different connotations for Saturday night, but at IMS, Saturday night Dharma talk is where it's happening. And um, it's nice to be here. We are on a journey. And that potential of Buddha nature lies within all of us. And the Persian poet Hafiz, he says, I wish I could just show you the astonishing light of your own being. This is a journey for us to discover our own lights inside our own beings. Bhante Gunaratana, Selenese Buddhist monk that lives here in the States, he speaks about meditation as that you need to have a lot of gumption. I like that word, gumption. Gumption implies, you know, we, we get, there's a certain quality that when we are practicing, we have to sit at times with challenges, and I don't think I need to convince you of that. This is your first day of practice, and uh, no doubt, uh, perhaps you've been experiencing wandering mind and restless mind and so forth takes a certain type of gumption to be here because otherwise, you know, you might begin to wonder, why don't I just stay home and watch a, a movie? Maybe this would be better. But there's something that brings us here, something that brings us here rather than staying home watching a movie. 
And the Buddha talks about five remembrances that are very helpful. And perhaps they've been hovering in your awareness or just beneath the surface of your awareness. But somehow, somewhere, things have led you that you want to go inwards and do some practice. So the Buddha speaks about in these five remembrances that I am of the nature to grow old and I cannot escape growing old. The second is I am of the nature to have ill health and I cannot escape from having ill health. No doubt we can meditate, eat right, exercise, have good interpersonal communication skills, but in the end, I am of the nature to die, and I cannot escape from death. That's the third remembrance. And the fourth is that all that is dear to me, everyone I love, are of the nature of change, and I cannot escape from being separated from them. The fifth remembrance is my deeds are my closest companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds. My deeds are the ground on which I stand. So no doubt today, in our first day of practice, we've been at times experiencing challenges, and yet perhaps it's these deeper remembrances that bring us to the cushion to look more deeply within at our lives. Perhaps we've been caught in moments of wanting it to be different mind. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Wanting it to be different. Or not wanting it to be the way that it is. Restless mind. Doubtful mind. Will this really help? Sloth and torpor mind. This type of sleepiness. So these practices of Mindfulness are to help to awaken, and it is said uh, the meaning of the Buddha is the, it's referred to as the awakened one. Awakening from the sloth and torpors of unawareness. When the Buddha, actually before the Buddha became the Buddha, his name was Siddhartha Gautama, and he lived a very wonderful life as a prince growing up in a kingdom. And he had all the latest. He just got the, the iPhone and the iPad and all the different things that anybody would ever want. All the education, beautiful partner, palaces. And his father. King Sudana tried to keep him very sheltered because it was rumored when he was born with some holy people that came to see the new prince that some said he'll become a great king like his dad, but one said he'll become a Buddha. And his father didn't want him to become a Buddha. So he kept him sheltered, didn't see any of the unpleasantness of life. And so the story goes that he lived that way for up to 29 years. 
And in his 29th year, he set out for a um, tour outside of his immediate palace with his charioteersman, Chana. And they went on a series of tours, and he saw four different signs that rocked his soul, if you will. The first encounter was that he saw a person that was very old and asked Chana, who's this? And goes, oh, this is a person, if you live long enough, you'll get old. And Siddhartha, this will happen to me, to everyone I know, and says, yes, no one can escape from aging. The second sign, saw a person very ill and asked Chana, what's this? Well, this is a person that's ill. Surely you live long enough. You get really, really sick. No one can escape from sickness. Third sign was a corpse. Siddhartha saw this person wasn't moving, wasn't breathing. Their body was beginning to decay. What's going on here? And Chana said, this is a person that has died. No one can escape from death. Now, it may be hard to, you know, accept, or at least it was for me, like, how could he have been so sheltered for 29 years and not seen anything? But, you know, I'm 56. I'm still not quite sure if I got it yet, to be honest. And so sometimes, even though we see things, we pretend that we don't see them, the depth of, like, wow, this is really going to happen. And, you know, my hair's begun to fall out. It's begun to turn gray. I am of the nature to grow old and to get sick and to die. It's a hard thing to accept. Well, Siddhartha Gautama, when he realized these first three signs of aging, illness, and death, he woke up. Now, in the language of the early Buddhists is the very beautiful language called Pali. And Pali, there's various words in Pali that you could, just one word you could write pages on its definition. And one such word is a word called samweka. And Samweka describes a state of consciousness when one realizes that one is going to die and that it can happen at any moment. It catapults one into a sense of spiritual urgency. For There's nothing else that matters but to understand what is this meaning of life. And Siddhartha Gautama had Samweka big time. And it was because of this awakening that he realized that he did not want to become a king. He wasn't interested in the latest upgrade on the iPhone or whatever. And he wanted to go and practice. And he wasn't sure where to go and what to do until he saw the fourth sign, which is that he saw out in the village one day this wandering ascetic that had kind of rag robes and you know, was a very unusual looking person that you'd never seen before. And the countenance on this person was so graceful, so serene, so unworldly, so peaceful. And Siddhartha said, who's this person? I never saw a person like this. And Chana said, this is a person that's a, a holy person. This is a person dedicated to wanting to understand the meaning of life. And at that point, Siddhartha knew this is what I want to do. And so it said on one 
day he left that palace with his wife and with his newborn child that was just being born. And he left into the forest. Now we might think, what type of guy leaves his wife and kid? And of course, in those days, the palace was filled with you know, maids and servants and family. And so he knew that they were going to be well cared for. And happily, as uh, time goes on, the Buddha actually comes back to his son, to his wife, to his father, and gives them the teachings of the Dharma. And they all get enlightened and live happily ever after. The Buddha came back to his family, to his roots. It's hard for us at times to realize that this aging and illness is taking place. I remember once many years ago having a very, very powerful dream where I was standing at a seashore and there was a very bu big building right at the seashore and there was horrendous waves that were crashing in and it was sweeping into the first floor, sweeping into the second floor. The building was going to come down. This was in my dream. And I started climbing up the floors because I knew there was people there. And I was climbing up the floors and I entered into these worlds where people were just dancing and drinking and partying. And I'm trying to tell them, you don't understand below, below the, the, the foundation, it's, it's being dissolved. No one could hear me. I woke up and sweat. And it was a very powerful dream, metaphorically, of uh, how I understand for myself of waking up to these truths of aging, illness, and death. And so Siddhartha Gautama practiced very strenuously for seven years, and he mastered many different types of meditation practices, went going from one meditation master to another, till he had learned everything that they had known, and, and then he was offered, here, now you can come and teach with me, but Siddhartha still didn't get what he was looking for. So then he decided that he'll practice with these very um, uh, striving ascetics that were into very intensive self-mortification, punishing the body. It is said that Siddhartha ate so little he got down to one grain of rice a day and finally to the point when he put his hand on his belly he could feel his tailbone and getting very sick and fearing that he was going to die. He realized the futility of this self-mortification and he decided to take some food, restore his health and strength and wandered over to a tree known as the Bodhi tree and sat underneath this tree and just made a determination that I'm going to sit here till I figure it out. <laughs> and as he sat there, it is said that he recalled a memory when he was a child. And he was with his dad and they were out at some place where the farmers were just breaking the soil, putting in the new seed for the day. And he was remembering sitting in a tree 
perhaps somewhat similar to the tree that he was sitting in now. And it was one of those like unbelievable, beautiful days. The wind was just right, the temperature, the colors. It was one of those just magical, beautiful days. And he was just delighting in the beauty of the day and being very sensitive that he was as the plows were beginning to go and dig deep into the earth, he almost sensed or could feel the cries of the worms being cut as the plows were going into the earth. And in that moment, there was this such an experience of this preciousness and this fragileness of life. And he recalled around that time, too, that he began to become mindful of his breath in, mindful of his breath out. And sitting upright under that tree, he began to practice with his mindfulness of breathing. And he said that through the night, he was, of course, met with mighty obstacles. Mara, the embodiment of the tempter, would bring on temptations of, of desire and aversion and fear. And as each of the forces of Mara came to the Buddha, the Buddha, with his eyes open, would say, I see you, Mara. I see you, sloth and torpor. I see you, wanting mind. I see you, aversion mind. I see you, restlessness. And as each was seen and named and acknowledged, Mara was defeated. And deep awakening arose into Siddhartha Gautama, of the Four Noble Truths, and he became known as the Buddha, the Awakened One. What the Buddha discovered underneath the Bodhi tree was four noble truths. The noble truth of suffering, the noble truth of its cause, the noble truth of the end of suffering, and the path that leads to its ending. So when we talk about suffering, and Richard talked about it earlier, the Pali word is dukkha. And supposedly there's some reference that just as a wheel that maybe has kind of like a little dent in the wheel, and so when it goes round and round, it goes da duk da duk da duk You know, it's like it just doesn't quite work right. That's kind of the origins in some ways of the words dukkha, but when we speak about dukkha, we speak about suffering, and it's not to paint that sometimes Buddhism gets a bum rap, oh, Buddhism is all about suffering, it's actually just the opposite, it's about liberation. But perhaps the Buddha, in his wisdom, named that there is indeed suffering, and it's actually maybe a relief for many people when they finally, like, when they I don't like to pick on the elephant in the room, but sometimes it's part of our language, like acknowledging the elephant in the living room. There's many different iterations we can describe what suffering is, but perhaps it's that life will not always go your way. And it has many implications, being with people that we don't like, and of course getting ill and dying, and there's lots of different aspects about suffering that this is part of our human condition. In our human condition, there will be dissatisfactoriness. There will be difficulties. We can't control these. 
And the Buddha talked about that there was an origin, the noble truth of the origin of suffering, and talks about that it's this sense of wanting, and also it's opposite of not wanting. Kabir, he says that, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn, sewn cloths and now I wear a robe, but then I noticed one day the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder, so I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm kind of proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it often still holds on to one thing. Very difficult to break that link, of course. But as we look at the causes of suffering, we talk about, and I think that we can relate to that, and maybe it's right in our cushions today that, that that at times it almost feels like there's a ceaseless feeling of wanting something. Or a ceaseless feeling at times of not wanting what's here. Or the ceaseless feelings of wanting to become, to be, become known, famous, liked, respected, to do this, to do that. Does it sound familiar? The third Zen patriarch, he, he says, well, the, you know, it's really easy. The great way is, is, is not difficult for those that have no preferences. <laughs> the great way is not difficult for those that have no preferences. But not so easy to have no preferences. But it is said in the Dharma that there's no fire hotter than greed. There's no ice colder than hatred. There's no fog thicker than ignorance. Third noble truth speaks to the cessation of suffering in this eradication of our own greed, hatred, and ignorance. Kabir also writes where he says that I went searching for the shop where the merchant would say, there's nothing of value here. I found it and I stayed. Feel kind of the freedom in that poem? I found it and I stayed. The prescriptive path for this cessation of suffering is through the Eightfold Path. This is the fourth noble truth of the Buddha often divided into three qualities of virtuous life, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise action, and wise concentration. It occupies wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, and wisdom, panya and pali, wise thought, wise understanding, that these qualities of keeping our speech and livelihood and action, our effort, our mindfulness, our concentration, our wise thought, wise understanding, these are the attitudes, the practices that help us to potentially end our suffering. In the second discourse of the Buddha, so that 
first discourse of the Four Noble Truths is called the Dharma Chakra Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And in the second discourse that the Buddha taught, the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the Sutta, the teachings of the three characteristics of existence, he talks about that there's three characteristics that exist within our universe, universal conditions of impermanence, that all things are impermanent, everything that arises passes away. Because of that, of course, there can be this inherent dissatisfactoriness because we can't keep things the same. And because of this not being able to keep things the same, this impermanence, how can there ever be a self? And the Buddha argues in the Anattalakana Sutta, he says, the body is without self. I know this is a very radical teaching, but he says the body is without self. If there was a self, the body would be not subject to suffering. Goes on to say that, you know, if, if there was a self, you could say, body, don't get sick. Have some control. And yet we find on the very basic level, we cannot prevent ourselves from getting ill. A certain uncontrollability factor in life. Now, John Kabat-Zinn, and some of you were referencing him earlier, who's the Mindfulness Space Stress Reduction founder, he has a wonderful translation of, of the three characteristics of existence, which again is suffering, impermanence, and no self, where he says, for suffering, he says simply, in his New York jargon, shit happens. <laughs> and with impermanence, things change. And with no self, don't take it personally. These things happen. This Eightfold Path, these teachings of the noble truths and the characteristics of existence, how are they to be realized? As said, it is realized through the practices of meditation, of mindfulness. It leads us to the four foundations of mindfulness to this meditation retreat. Why are we coming here? Because many of us are coming here because we are suffering. What brought me to this meditation practice was suffering. When I was a young boy, I lost my best friend, my father, my, my grandfather, and my brother by the time I was 10 years old. I realized very early in life that, that we die. And what is this life was a very haunting question for me personally growing up. And school never made much sense to me until after flunking out of college and being readmitted back in warning. And I decided, well, I'll take a class that looks interesting to me. And it was called Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. I had this sense of liking the East. Growing up outside of Boston, I was a Jew, and we wouldn't eat. Um, we kept kosher, so we'd have to go out for Chinese restaurants. And there's something about the Chinese restaurants. The food was fabulous, and the art was very different. It was just a different feel there. I was drawn to the East. And so I took this class, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen, and this was in the middle 70s. This was up in northern Vermont. And I walk into my classroom, and my professor was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. 
this was unlike any other professor I had ever seen before in my life. And, and it was like, who is this guy? And, and I saw the way that he was holding himself and who he was. He knew something that I didn't know, and I wanted to know what he knew. He, there was something about him that was really remarkable. And so we started off with the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, and I'll never forget epigram number 47 where it says, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And when I read that, I had this, just this realization, this awakening and, and realizing that I had been looking in every other place, lost in my confusion, in my despair of life. What is this life as a Vietnam War and the Beatles are growing their hair along and what's going on here? And I realized I'd been looking outside of myself. And that really began my intentional meditative journey many, many years ago. So the Buddha outlined in this meditative journey these four foundations of mindfulness. The Buddha is known to say that this is the direct way to realization. And he divides these foundations of mindfulness into four. There's the foundation of the body, foundation of sensations, foundation of mind states, and the foundation of certain mental qualities that provide a frame of reference to help us understand and work with the first three foundations. This retreat is focusing on the body. And yet, as we focus on the first foundation of mindfulness, kaya nupasana, the other foundations will arise as well because each foundation is interrelated and interconnected. Although we're focusing on the body, the other foundations will arise, and we'll speak to that. But tonight, I want to speak about the body practices. In the foundation of the body, there's six distinct practices, and we've begun to work with the first three, awareness of the breathing, being mindful of our postures, and developing our mindfulness in our day-to-day -day activities, such as our walking and eating and brushing our teeth and so forth. The other three, as Richard was mentioning, are not that much practiced here in the West. That is the 32 parts of the body meditation, the elements, the four primary elements, solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature, and the mindfulness of death. And particularly in the mindfulness of death, there's nine contemplations, very graphic in the sutta, from the first day of a person dying until the body turns to dust. With very graphic um, descriptions that we might mention later. I often wondered, why would they be so graphic? But again, coming back to that Buddha not realizing that things are going to change by the age of 29, maybe it would take a person like me to actually see a, a body on its first day of death until it turned into dust to really get it, that it does indeed happen. It's difficult for us to get that things happen. St. Augustine, in the year 399, that's a long time ago, 399, he says that people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and at the huge waves of the seas, 
People wonder at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean. People wonder at the circular motion of the stars, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. It's kind of stunning and astonishing. Walking right past ourselves without ever wondering. In this practice of mindfulness, we are beginning to bring our awareness fully into our bodies. And sometimes we'll realize that we're not that present to them. And in mindfulness-based stress reduction, we always use this little quote from James Joyce's book, The Dubliners, about a character in his book. His name was Mr. Duffy. And it was said of Mr. Duffy, quote, unquote, that he happened to live a short distance away from his body. And in our practice of mindfulness, we're beginning to bring awareness into the body. The Buddha, he speaks from the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the canonical literature. And this is a little paraphrase where he says, I do not teach that the cessation of the world of suffering could be done without the attainment of Nibbana. Within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, is the world, its origin, its cessation, and the path to peace and freedom. Mary Oliver, she says in her poem, The Body That Blessed the Fingers, They're Darting as Fire. Bless the little hairs of the body, for they're softer than grass. Bless the hips, for they're cunning beyond all mach machinery. Bless the mouth, for it is the describer. Bless the tongue, for it is the maker of words. Bless the eyes, for they are the gifts of the angels, for they tell the truth. Bless the shoulders, for they are strength and shelter. Bless the thumb, for when it's working, it has a godly grip. Bless the feet, for their knuckles and their modesty. And bless the spine, for it is the whole story. And Saraha says, within my body are all the sacred places of the world, and the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. My teacher, Tang Pulu Sero, was a very sincere practitioner of the 32 parts of the body meditation. And I was introduced to this practice in 1980. And it's really funny to say, but as I can say it because of aging, that I practiced this meditation on and off for 26 years. And it occurred to me after 26 years that this was indeed an incredibly powerful practice. It took me about that long to finally get it. <laughs> and I began teaching with it. Tangpulo Sero says about the 32 parts of the body that this is the most eminent among the foundations of mindfulness. This meditation is unlike any other kind of meditation. It is brought to light and taught only in the times when the Buddhas arise. The benefits that are said about the 32 parts of the body meditation is that first and foremost, it helps to eradicate the erroneous view of self, of mind. It is also that said that you can help conquer boredom, conquer fear and dread. You can bear cold and heat, uproots pride and attachment, 
amasses deep concentration, attains absorption, jhana, attains nirvana. 32 parts of the body is one of these types of practices that can be used as a concentration meditation to develop jhana and absorption or used as a practice of insight, penetration into the three characteristics and four noble truths and attain nirvana. The way that I prefer to teach the 32 parts of the body is as an insight practice related to the elements. As we break down this body, it of course breaks down into solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature. For those of you that become interested in this practice, your reference is probably in the, in the Vasudhimaga, or the path of purification. The path of purification takes another angle of working with this practice, and I feel I need to say it out loud, because it can be practiced in two ways. One is the way of working with elements, and the other way is perhaps more of a monastic practice of looking at the body as a, uh, a loathsome aspect, a repulsive aspect of the body. This is very strong language for us Westerners. There is certain parts that I would relate to that might be repulsive in the sense that tonight with the soup, I don't think I'd go, it would go very well if my hair, but I probably don't have too much, uh, was in the soup or in my sandwich, or if, of course someone put a candle to my hair and it smelled my hair, it might not smell so good. But I prefer to teach this practice as a practice of insight and also to help to break the enchantment of the body, the spell of enchantment. But there's a middle path here, and it's even said back in the time of the Buddha that some monks began to develop this repulsive aspect of the body, and it's said that they took their lives. And the Buddha, when the Buddha heard that, was not very thrilled about it. And so this practice, and, and I've actually been teaching this for the last four years. And the way that we approach it is through working with the practice as it's an interrelatedness to the elements and to begin to understand the true nature of the body. Where is the self to be found? Is it in the head here, the body here, the nails, the teeth, the skin, and so forth? Achan Mun, who was uh, Achan Cha's uh, teacher, Achan Cha was the teacher of Jack Kornfield and many others, Chansumedo. But Achamun says that in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine its nature. See the elements, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. And when its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world become clear. In this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. So I was mentioning that after 26 years of working with this practice that I had a kind of a, a profound realization of this is really an amazing practice. And I often make it akin to, um, I wish I had this enlarged, but this is a picture of a far side cartoon, Gary Larson. And it's a picture of three cows, and they're in a pasture, and they're eating grass. This is what they do. Cows eat grass in the pasture every day. 
Well, one day this one cow has an epiphany, has an insight, and he starts calling to all the other cows, hey, wait a minute, wait one minute, we're eating grass, we're eating grass, we're eating grass, wait a minute. So in the same way, hey, wait a minute, we got a body, we got a body, we have a body, and somehow, we wake up. There is a body here. That moment, for those of you that saw The Matrix, and Neo wakes up and he's been plugged in. He's realized he's plugged in some virtual reality. And he sees what's here. The 32 parts of the body has this aspect of waking up into the body. A very powerful practice of going into the body. Now we may ask, what are these parts? So I'll recite them to you. There's 20 solid parts and 12 liquid parts. And they're divided into four groups of five solids and two groups of six liquid parts. Tomorrow I'll be having handouts so you can see them all. But they are head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. You may wonder why these parts, why this order, so many parts left out. The canonical literature does not explain why this order, why many parts left out. As we've been working with the practice, if other parts arise in awareness as we're working with it, we include them as part of the practice. So we're not trying to exclude anything. These parts, though, are pointing us in the direction of coming in touch with the body and what it evokes physically, mentally, and emotionally. This is a practice of moving into the body, feeling into it, getting in touch with what's arising on the physical level, sensational level, what's rising on the mental level, what's rising on the the emotional level beginning to penetrate into the body. Now when we think about the order of these parts, there is a wisdom. The first five, for example, are head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. And when you consider it, these first five parts are the parts that we see each other. When we look around the room and look at each other, we see head hair, we see body hair, we see fingernails and toenails, we see teeth, we see skin. The cosmetic industry goes to town on us. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. We fuss a lot with head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. And so I think it's incredibly wise of the Buddha to begin to point to the parts that we are looking at with one another. A friend of mine, she's been taking the 32 parts of the body class for the last three years. And by the way, there's a few different ways you can practice this. We're going to do the few-day version, but the long version takes eight months or 33 weeks. And I'll go into explaining that in another discourse because our time's getting close. But Virginia, she, um, she's 67 years old, and she's a former CEO, and she put together an Excel sheet of her estimate of what she spent on her head, hair, body, hair, and nails, teeth, and skin for the first 67 years. It actually comes out to $180,691. So on head here, between the ages 0 to 67, she spent $27,835. On body here, she's spent 
1,025 on nails, she spent $14,350 on teeth, $1,985 on skin, $21,600. And then she goes and ex explains, like, you know, like for facials and, you know, for, like, for like on the head hair, shampoo, conditioners, curly, uh, curling irons, hair dryers, hair ties, haircuts, salon treatments, under body hair, razors, shaving cream, eye wax, under nails, nail polish, nail files, nail utensils, pedicures, manicures, nail oil, under teeth, toothpaste, dental floss, toothbrushes, electronic toothbrushes, whiteners, cleanings twice a year, fillings, crowns, on skin, lotion, moisturizer, cleanser, makeup, peels, face work, laser work, cancer, skin cancer, freezings, and surgeries. So anyways, uh, she's estimating about $180,000 on head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin alone. <laughs> so tomorrow we'll be going into this practice of the body and the way that the Buddha taught the practice is categorized into seven, what he calls the sevenfold skills in learning. And what's very interesting about this practice is that it's very much encouraged, even if you know the entire Tipitaka by heart, <laughs> the Buddha says you need to practice this chanting out the, the body parts out loud. So that's the first part is chanting out loud the parts. So tomorrow morning on our first meditation, we'll be, begin our practice, of course, in silence, but 10 minutes before the meditation's over, be prepared Unfortunately, if there's not enough light in the room, I will turn on the lights and we will then do the 10-minute version of the chanting of the body parts. We'll do this each morning as a practice. But the mental recitation sets upon the verbal recitation. So we say the parts out loud, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin. And then we say it silently to ourselves. Then we begin to penetrate into the practice knowing the color of the body part, the shape, the location, the, the direction, and the delimitation of what it's bordered by. And in this way, we begin to penetrate into the body. And so, for example, when we go into head hair, and I always like to read this one after my wife comes home after her haircut, head hair. Head hair is thread-like, Thread-like outgrowths from the skins of mammals. Thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells. Here is a protein filament that grows through the epidermis from follicles deep within the skin. Get the drift? What is the function? To keep the top of the head protected and for temperature regulation, protection from ultraviolet light. The color can be blonde, brown, gray, red, black, shaped like a lawn of grass, direction it's found above the waist, location protruding from the top of the head, and what is it bordered by, head here is bordered by the face, the back of the neck, and space itself. So we begin to penetrate into the part as it really is. It's a very different experience, thread-like outgrowth of hardened cells from the skins of mammal to all of a sudden fussing about our hairdo. And so we begin to penetrate into the true nature of what, this body, of what the body parts are, rather than perhaps the enchantment that we build up about it. So it's a very sobering and powerful practice. 
very important part of this practice, I feel, is the practice of loving kindness. Many of us have a very negative image of ourselves, of our bodies, and the practice of metta and love with the 32 parts, I feel, is very important because when you consider it that this is the only body we will ever get in this entire life. We may have a hip transplant, we may have an organ transplant, but we will not have a body transplant. This is the vehicle that we live inside of. This is the vehicle that we live in our pathway towards greater awakening. And so part of the integrated into this practice is this practice of loving kindness, to, to, to meet this body with self-compassion and understanding. And, um, and we'll grow from there. So I'm conscious of this time and... Oh, okay. Okay, thank you. Richard's saying I can talk longer, so I, I will just kind of finish up. Um, actually, I'm just going to do two more readings, and that will be it for tonight. Before I do that, I want to just mention that um, when you come in tomorrow, on each side of the hall, there's a little table, and so I'll have the papers on there, and you can take one, and on one side is the information about the 32 parts of the body, and you can chant from that sheet, and the other side is on the elements. And not to scare you, just to warn you uh, that we are going to, we found out very happily that there's a skeleton that's living upstairs, and we're going to bring the skeleton down out of the closet, and we'll find a place to put the skeleton that you can see. And I actually brought some pictures from my colonoscopy and my knee surgery, so you can see <laughs> what the inside of my body looks like. And um, I found this to be very powerful to be able to go into the body. So just a few readings. So some, a poet friend of ours, she took the 32 parts of the body in a different way. And so being the poet that she is, she wrote the 110 functions of the body. So I'd like to read this to you. Inhaling, exhaling, smelling, coughing, sniffing, sneezing, hungering, thirsting, licking, sucking, tasting, biting, chewing, salivating, spitting, lubricating, swallowing, belching, hiccuping, vomiting, transporting, digesting, selecting, absorbing, storing, burning, building, copying, creating, destroying, cramping, flatulating, defecating, pumping, distributing, filtering, excreting, holding, urinating, listening, seeing, blinking, dilating, crying, speaking, humming, singing, screaming, whispering, smiling, frowning, laughing, upholding, anchoring, propiocepting, sitting, standing, balancing, walking, running, jumping, dancing, hugging, tensing, relaxing, contracting, stretching, trembling, enclosing, excluding, warming, shivering, cooling, sweating, itching, scratching, shedding, moving, touching, feeling, engorging, climaxing, sleeping, snoring, dreaming, waking, menstruating, conceiving, bearing, birthing, suckling, growing, fatiguing, breaking, aching, ailing, paining, fevering, replenishing, cleansing, hosting, engulfing, killing, collecting, repairing, clotting, blocking, swelling, dying, decaying. So some facts about the body. 
Every person has a unique tongue print. There's enough iron in the human body to make one nail. A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel over 100 miles per hour. It takes 17 muscles to smile and 43 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. Most people blink about 25 times a minute. Every breath we inhale, billions of atoms that end, end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc. The average adult is made of 100 trillion cells. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of your body is populated by 62 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about a pound and a half a year. I wonder how much we've done already here. The body makes a new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces new head hair every two to five years, except for me. <laughs> the body replaces new eyebrows that consist of 450 hairs and are replaced every three to five months. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to this sentence. Radioactive isotype studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So, in other words, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same as yesterday. So let's just sit for a minute. gratefulness without this body we wouldn't be here to practice so I'll just end with a very beautiful children's poem or prose that I just love from the Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams what's real asked the rabbit one day real isn't how you made said the skin horse it's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long long time not just plays with you, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Yes, sometimes it does, said the skin horse. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit, asked the rabbit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. To become real takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easy or who have sharp edges, or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, 
and you get loose in the joints and very, very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except the people who don't understand. And once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. May all beings be at peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.